And welcome to the last part of Writing the Bones, the podcast about the book project that is being worked on by the three partners at the Three Little Sisters. In this podcast, we're just wrapping up conversation on this topic and discussing a little bit more about our insights. You'll be able to find all the information about this project coming soon. We're releasing details out around September, so check out our website for more details about this project and many others like it. Sisters, The Three Little Sisters is an independent publisher focusing on titles from around the globe. This month on The Publishing House, we've been uh, focusing a lot on horror, and now we're going to sort of diverge from that topic and talk about a little bit of an academic heavy topic, and that is the concept of death. This podcast is going to be divided into three parts and is focusing on a book that was written by the three partners of The Three Little Sisters, that's Larissa, Xiao, and Sarah. And the book is titled Riding the Bones. In a brief overview, uh, Riding the Bones is a book that explores our modern day relationship with life and death. While exploring the spiritual past that inspired us as human beings to form views on how to personally cope with loss. The book details not only these modern explorations of how we mourn while we confront and manage loss, but also provides a snapshot into time that explores the history of Celtic and Norse peoples and their deeply rooted relationships with their gods. With the worldview of connectivity in an infinite cycle, it may seem like this is a utopian view. But for the ancient people, the world of life and death was intricately connected. The care of the dead and the preparation of bodies was imperative to their crossing and was ever-evolving. Riding the Bones details this deep relationship they had with the dead and the use and care of bodies and how one could transition from humble body to divine grandmother. The book is actually divided into three different parts. Part one is the personal experiences of death and how it's affected by the three authors. The concepts of loss is discussed in different ways, dissecting and transformation the meaning of the word and also diving into how each of the authors were affected by these transformations. Part two explores the history of Norse and Celtic people, expansions of customs for burial, the view of the gods, and the evolution of traditions around the globe that show an incredible connective practice of death worship. Part three expands into the goddesses and leads into the second book, an expansive oracle tarot based on the concepts discussed and the views of the goddesses shared by the authors. To begin this conversation, we're gonna start with a section that was very near and dear to all three of us while writing the book. And it's called That One Time We Ate Grandmother. As we began our research into the concept of this book, the idea kept coming back again and again of a different kind of view of an ancestor. For me, when I personally came to, into heathenry, I had an expansive issue with forming a, an ancestral connection because for me, my ancestors are not ones that I feel at all rooted to or connected to based on the fact that I lived and existed in a world of trauma. This trauma was very difficult for me to unpin from my religious beliefs. And so therefore I could never really come to terms with the idea of ancestor worship. So I really wanted to understand and hone in on really what they felt about the ancestors. Was it really like everyone in heathenry had kept saying that ancestors were pivotal to our practice? Or is it possible that there's something else out there What I found and uncovered was something truly eye-opening to me, and that was that the body itself was not nearly viewed as worshipy as heathens made it out to be. In fact, the transition of the body allowed for many variations of what they felt was important about a person when they died. 
These thoughts were even more cemented when I attended a wonderful presentation online by the London Museum of Docklands, where they also uh, went into this find called the Horde. Although this wasn't specifically related to death and dying, this particular presentation, funny enough, mentioned a whole bunch of things that are related to it, thus proving to myself that uh, there was in fact a different kind of view, and that this view could be uh, adapted by a modern day haven. What I found in my research was um, incredibly eye-opening. What I saw was a people that adapted their uh, religious beliefs and burial customs as time went on. It first began with the idea that the body itself was not as important as the journey for which it was about to take. The journey often involved masking, which I know is a very complicated subject to dive into and one that we won't have time to dive into fully here. But the concept of masking is often thought of being like wearing an actual costume mask. This is not the case. Masking actually can mean the scarification or the removal of bones or uh, facial features from a corpse. The reason this is done, although it seems very strange to us today, is because masking was a way of tattooing or marking or adorning the body in a way that was um, worthy of presentation to the goddesses. I know this view seems very problematic for those of us living today as we only see bodies um, very tangentially as most of us today are not even exposed to a dead body. We often see the person uh, final appearance in either ash form or in a coffin form and usually that coffin is with a prepared corpse not one that is unprepared or undecorated un for their journey. At this time in Norse mythology or sorry not Norse mythology and the Norse time period they didn't really have that. There were no funeral parlors that you could take your dead to. So dead bodies were much more uh, exposed to people and often family groups would see a dead body uh, in various stages, usually over several days. What I discovered in this was that there was concepts that were woven into this um, uh, ancestral preparation that could be deemed as worship, but also could be deemed as just part of the preparation of the body, such as removing pieces of the body or flesh and actually consuming it as food. I know this sounds completely grotesque to those of us living today, but in fact, it was mostly understood then that the body had power and thus consuming pieces of a person was actually consuming aspects of themselves. There was also parts of the, under, uh, or the preparation of the body in which the body actually moved from different stages. I viewed this in sort of uh, a five-stage process. One, you died. Two, you were in the grave. Three, you went to the afterlife. Four, you were probably placed in a place that was significantly important to your friends or family. This could be a threshold, a mound, a central location, or anywhere that the community deemed fit for your bones to locate. You were also the distaff or the whirl or pieces of clothing spun for the next generation. You now also became ancestor or filija, even defied and deified, deified in some degree. There was different things that happened to you as you went through these stages. And what I found there was that there was an interesting wordplay going on of when really a person transitioned from being just a body to the great matriarch. And this was kind of woven um, amongst the mythology. So I'm gonna stop there so we could open a little bit of discussion as uh, on this particular topic of the idea of consuming or masking the dead. So I think I'll 
focus on mostly the masking aspect, but I wanted to see what my three sisters also found in their research that shows um, a real connection between this concept across Celtic Norse uh, peoples. So if, I'll open that floor up to Xiel. Well, um, I'm not sure if Celtic has masking as you described it, but we certainly did have our own burial wake practices in ancient Irish tradition, and those Irish traditional customs also beget today's modern day funeral and wake traditions. For example, in ancient Ireland, the body was washed, wrapped in a death shirt, called an Esleen, the body was laid with out with burning candles or rushes around it for seven days. So traditionally in modern day, you don't see seven days, especially not in the home. Um, people would keen or what we call Ben Hoink over the dead body and praise him or her. Uh, three days after the body was laid out, feasts and games would be held in their honor. Now, today, in today's standards, that's kind of frowned on. Um, but back then, that was actually the very, very huge tradition that kept them connected to their dead ancestors and their dead family members. On the body, a bowl was placed on the chest into which people would place food coins for the dead for the use in the next life. A very... Um, a tradition that's found across many cultures, actually, even including Egyptian, I believe the Norse has a, a similar tradition. Um, on the morning of the burial, and this is where it gets interesting, and it's really connected with some, or at least, you know, like the idea that you're talking about, that family are very connected to their dead. A druid comes in with a rug called a faith, or a faith. It was made of aspen and, and with Ohem letters or Ohem letters on the symbols, uh, on the carved into the, the rod. It was used to measure the body to ensure a proper fit within the resting place, which is very interesting. You don't really see that in too many cultures. It said that if you looked at the faith, your death was unavoidable, un, un, unavoidable because it was already it had already measured you. Some sources also say the druid would whisper in the dead person's ear, giving them instructions on how to get to the next world. If the person was murdered or otherwise died without the presence of a druid, they would still try to speak to the spirit to guide it. Now, most burial customs varied by tribe in ancient Ireland. Sometimes you'll see animal sacrifice, and there's where there's a little bit of a connection between your uh, human consumption and animal sacrifice because it's said that perhaps there was also human consumption and human sacrifice in Irish tradition. Now the animal sacrifice and grave goods are both common in Irish mythology and practice and is supported by archaeological finds. In traditional Irish custom that begets today's funeral customs, we have the opening of a window to allow the spirit to leave the room and not retain in the body. Now, we don't usually do that nowadays, and I'm, it's a lost custom. But today, we, we prepare, well, then they prepared the body and laid it on the, out on the table, like I was saying. 
Loved ones surround the body and prevent evil spirits from taking the soul. They make sure not to walk or stand between the deceased and the window for this purpose. But today, most people have an outside professional, such as a funeral director, coord co who coordinates the care of their loved one's body. Sometimes a traditional mortician is involved. Um, my favorite is a happens to be on YouTube. Um, that mortician, she's amazing. If you want to learn more about mortician, you should go see her YouTube channel. It's amazing. She's funny. <clears throat> Sometimes a traditional mortician will also be involved, but the funeral director coordinates the wake, known as the viewing these days. We don't really call it a wake, we call it a viewing. That usually lasts between two and three days instead of the traditional seven days that came from the Irish traditions. The body is prepared with more modern day procedures, such as embalming, instead of dressing them in an esteline. Uh, the funeral home will wash, dress, and not always embalm, but most of the time they do the deceased and then place them in a casket. And then we have the wake, and everybody's familiar with the wake or the viewing, which is either one to two days. Um, the second tradition is candles are placed at the head and the foot of the deceased with a pair of shoes to help walk through purgatory. Now, we don't place shoes and candles anymore, but we're, our flower arrangements pretty much replace those candles and shoes. Now, this one's interesting because it has a little connection to Hollywood. The clocks are all stopped at the hour of death. That was a, an old tradition from the Irish traditions that we no longer practice nowadays either. And the curtains are drawn and the mirrors are covered to respect the deceased. This is a tradition that fell away from us. And, but um, if you're familiar with Hollywood horror movies, They'll pan to a clock or a grandfather clock the moment the main character dies and it stops the clock. So Hollywood has even picked up on that. Um, the fourth tradition, and this is the one that's most close to my heart, is keening, or what we call Ben Hoint. Now, it's considered poetry recitement and mourning of the deceased. And it's lamenting in a high-pitched scream wail. You'll see Korean traditions have it, uh, Chinese traditions have it, Japanese traditions have it as well. Um, this tradition we don't particularly keen anymore, but what we do do is we still do the food, drink, and share storytelling and discussions and praising the dead, deceased person. Um, how they touch the other family members' lives. Now, the very last and the fifth tradition is placing the deceased in the burial mound with goods, possibly animal sacrifice, belongings that are theirs for the afterlife in Pirinano, which is a paradise and supernatural realm of everlasting youth, beauty, health, abundance, and joy. It's pretty similar to the Christian description of heaven or even the Norse description of Valhalla and Helheim, to an extent. Music from traditional Irish bagpipes played, uh, and songs may be sung during internment. Uh, an example of that is the parting glass. Um, another tradition that we've kept in modern day society is placing the deceased and turning them and huming them and gathering to send them off to the afterlife with song, music, and hymns. Some ma family members may have placed like little tokens and pictures before they came to the cemetery at the wake. 
<laughs> now that that's all of that is the Irish old traditions that have given us the today's version of our funeral procession in a way and it's all connected back to that um masking of the the, the deceased and making that connection to our ancestry and and whatnot which is amazing to see that then you have that similar connection <clears throat> and that masking transitions even today like you mentioned we do the same thing with funeral parlors. We mask or decorate the body. When I was doing my research before I jumped to Sarah, <clears throat> one of the things that came up again and again and again is that the ancestor itself was not as important as the energy or the body or the their transition. <clears throat> it's a really, it's sort of a, um, a distinction without a difference <laughs> that the, the body was important, the person was important but life was fleeting at this time. So death was inevitable and you didn't really think much on what happened in the afterlife. It wasn't something you were concerned about. Every day was more important, uh, feeding your family being the most paramount. And so when someone died, which happened quite frequently, um, we have to also remember that at this time period, there are no ancestors. Um, there would only be child and parent, no, no grandparent at this time because of the fact that you didn't have intergenerational uh, survival. Most grandparents would have died before their child had their first child. Um, <clears throat> so we don't have, they, they didn't have uh, a, a lot of time between a grandmother and a, a, and a child, etc. And so what I found what's happening here is that the dead would be both honored and feared at the same time. There was an aspect of them that they wanted near them because they wanted grandmother. They wanted that protective, nurturing force in the village to make sure that the village was healthy and happy. But there was a part of them, and I think Sarah's going to touch on this, in which they totally feared the dead. And so you have this paradigm that's going on, and that's why I kind of feel the word worship is kind of problematic. It's not really worship per se. It's almost as if you're trying to like sit on the fence <laughs> between uh, revering them and respecting them and also being deaf, deathly afraid of them. So maybe Sarah, you can kind of um, give your opinion on that as I know that you as a heathen do some ancestral practice. And so maybe you can kind of clarify that little fine line. So for me, um, ancestor honoring, I, 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 frame from using the word worship. Um, honoring my ancestors is a, a large part of my heathen practice, um, but that stems mainly from my interest in genealogy. I, I feel like if I didn't have that interest to begin with, and if I wasn't sort of the keeper of my family's history, that maybe it wouldn't be so important um, but because I am, you know, ancestor honoring became a very important part of my, my heathen practice. But yeah, there is definitely, um, you know, you can see it with the different folklore that comes up around the dead, that there is definitely like a fear of them 
coming back and having some kind of retribution or them coming back and taking people with them. Um, you know, you see this when you talk about drowning. There's so many, so many mentions in folklore regarding people who have drowned. And the fear is that you go into the water and those people will take you. And there's still, I mean, urban legends today. You know, you could you go into a certain lake and everyone knows this lake is haunted and this spirit is going to drag you to the bottom. All of I mean, that's that goes back clear to the folklore from, you know, the old Norse. I'm sure you can find this in in Celtic folklore. I mean, all over the world. There is this very similar theme of. Yes, we love our dead, but the the dead in general are dangerous. Um, one of the things that I wanted to touch on is I I did a lot of uh, research into just customs around the world, and when we talk about family wanting to sort of maintain a connection with the bodies, you know, you can see this in a lot of celebrations around the world. You have Dia de la De la de los Muertos, um, which is, you know, everybody knows about the Day of the Dead. Um, it's a huge festival where they, you know, they celebrate their ancestors. They celebrate local ancestors. Um, you even have, I think I mentioned a uh, something in uh, Madagascar called the Turning of the Bones, where they will actually remove they're dead from one cemetery and take it to another to avoid their ancestral bones being ruined by floods. So there is a, there is definitely a connection where people want to stay, you know, they, they want to stay close to their ancestors and they want to keep up this, this connection. But, um, you know, yeah, there is definitely still a fear of other people's dead. Yeah, and it's interesting that you mentioned that, because when I went to this presentation at the Museum of Lachlan's, they actually mentioned the moving of the bones. Yeah. Um, and their, their opinion on it, and these are two very well-known archaeologists, was that there are two things happening at this time. You have natural phenomenons and unnatural phenomenons yeah. in that there's a natural cave and everybody knows about the goddess who lives in the cave and everybody knows that she roars and everybody knows that through this portal is some afterlife of whatever construction. Everybody knows this at this time, but there's also next door to that natural cave, a man-made structure that we've built to worship this goddess of the cave. And I'm using this as an example. This is not exactly what they said, but um, I'm giving you this example to kind of distinguish between the two. They saw both as natural and both as man-made. Uh -huh. So the natural formed cave could have been placed there by a giant for all they know, or for by a god, or by a man. They don't actually know who placed these there. And so for them, natural phenomenon held so much power that when they placed the dead in there, it was to hold them. Hence... Uh -huh a word that Chiel pointed out, but that hell means to cover or conceal. So they're concealing the dead, covering them in a place that is to protect them. 
Yeah. And that's also to protect them from the dead. Uh-huh. So it's this dual purpose going on. Um, and also that the dead were used to power these natural phenomenons. Now, I know a lot of us are going to feel some woo-woo witchy term there, but that's not how it was seen. They were seen that you put the ancestors in a place where the sun is shining and they are the sun. Like, the two things are not separate from each other. The dead and the natural life are one. And so you're just returning these people from where they came from. Whether it's they came from the stars, they came from the ground, they had these like ideas and concepts in their head that the body, we, are made up of dirt and earth. And so by placing us back in these places, we are powering the earth and thus giving us good harvest, thus like preserving generations. And they brought this up in particular with the horde because this one find was so unusual uh, to discover because of the fact, as these two archeologists pointed out, you don't find a lot of bodies. And the reason for that is because most of the bodies at this time were cremated. So we don't get a lot of actual human remains. When we do, it's weird, okay? And everybody pays attention to it because you're like, you have a whole body. And this is great. Now we can do all the DNA and find out all this stuff. So this particular hoard was incredibly unusual because what they found in it was not only fully forged weapons that had never been used before, completely blacksmithed, tuply placed in this in this mound, but also broken implements that were specifically and purposely broken to give to this mound. Mm-hmm. And what they also found in here was bodies or pieces of bodies that were buried with the weapons. And their belief is that these two archaeologists were mentioning is that it, A, it was to preserve the power of these weapons. Like, oh, now we know there's a horde buried in the in the desert. <laughs> Should that like other raiding tribe come and get us, we all go out and dig up our swords. And two, that they saw the production of a weapon, of an amulet, as being so intrinsically connected with the dead that they piece these two things together. In other words, I'm putting the DNA of you in my sword. I'm going to take a piece of your bone and wield it into my into my handle. I'm going to remove your molar and put it into my amulet because you are power and I need that special woo-woo power to go in and forth and, you know, conquer. So there Come on, Grandpa, different... let's go mess some stuff up. Exactly. <laughs> but you do it with, with the ancestor on you. You wear yeah. them. And it's this sort of, like, living, breathing connection because at, at, we often forget that in heathenry and also in Celtic druid mytho- uh, like practice, there is an idea of animism. That, that unliving objects are living. So uh-huh. a tree is, a, is alive. A rock is alive. And so the body still, even after it has ex- exalted its last breath, is still living. And I think, because I can, I have my video on and can see Shion nodding, that she's dying to say something. So go ahead, Shion. <laughs> well, I'm going to back up the both of you with uh, going back to the opening of the window and the covering of the mirrors and the stopping of the clock at the time of death. These are all things that where Sarah and you are talking about where feared the spiritual being of their, their deceased person, a loved one, 
or family member. They don't want grandma to come back and haunt them. Yeah. They certainly didn't want that. That that was that was a big no no. They didn't want that. And it brings me to um, the Irish Keening, um, where Keening was or lamenting was a female dominant role in old Irish traditions. It's a central component, actually, to the ritual concerning death. And almost all accounts show that it was passed down as a highly articulate tradition of women's poetry, which is pretty interesting because the Norse have their poetic eddas. The Norse have their vulvas that are very poetic and very female-dominant. So there's, there's a link there, too. Um, it was a role that was so important that messengers would be sent great distances to find a keening woman so that their ancestor would not come back and haunt them, not only for their own community members, but also for strangers that happened to die in the community because they didn't want the strangers to haunt them either. It creates a narrative that the keener was a psychopomp or a guide of souls to the place of the dead. And the keen itself originally served the ritual function, much like Norse counterpart of Volva, to help the soul travel from the world of the living into the spirit world. And that that keener, the the Ben Hoint, is actually related to something we call Ben She. The English word for Ben She, it sound you can actually hear the sound of the English word where it was taken from, is Banshee. Now that is a malevolent nature, kind of female-based entity, if you will. And it is said that the Banshee is said to sing death into the community, while the Keening woman is said to sing it out. And the fact that the Morrigan, or the Morrigan, is an archetypal figure in her relationship to Morigna, which is the word we use for malevolent female spirits, um, acknowledged her deep relationship with the dead and the spirit world. Now, Moro again is known not only as a sovereign goddess, she's also known as the Phantom Queen, which relates to Ben She or Banshee. Um, she's it's a reference to her status as the goddess of death and battle. So her trio, she's actually a trio of sisters, and this is where Wicca brings in the moon goddess, the triple moon goddess, they get it from this concept, archetype of concept. Bab, Maka, and Anand, also known as, of all things, Marigna. So they're associated with Banshee and any other type of Marigna, um, who appear, and they appear as a conspiracy of crows, just like, and I believe Hell has a representation of crows as well, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and they're the keepers of fate and purveyors of pro prophecy. So that relates to hell and how her counter, the counterpart, the most traditional counterpart of hell, Helheim, um, is, which means concealed place, the underworld. So it derives from a Proto-Indo-European word for concealed cover protect, which is the word that you were talking about earlier that we spoke about before we even started recording. The word kel. The old Irish equivalent is kale, meaning dis dissolution, extinction, extinction, and death. So hell as a goddess is depicted in 
Mm, I'd say surviving sources, most surviving sources belonging to the genre literary personification. So basically, it's like from Maria Kaldov's book, Seed of Yggdrasil, where she says it's her chicken theory on the gods and the goddesses on being the divine represent representation of human behavior. And that ties into your uh, eating grandma theory as well, as in, and, and, as in being that, you know, those are representations of human connections and behaviors that we want to emu make amuletic. So like you said, making an amulet, turning it into Oham or Futhark in a physical bodily representation rather than the actual Futhark or Oham. So it's taking a human being and making them a ruin. Mm -hmm. And it's all connected to all of that, the death goddesses, and how we relate to them and death. Right, and I think well, to oh, circle, oh sorry Sarah, so circle sorry. Before, you, before you, or, or no, you, actually you go and then I'll go. Um, I, I just had a had a question about, um, I, I know I I came across in, uh, in, in my research anyway, this, the, there was a theme of noise being used to kind of send the dead on their way. Um, and I was just going to ask Sheil if she found that keening had a similar connotation where it was a loud noise used to send the dead on their way and kind of let them know, hey, you know, we love you, but don't, don't come back. <laughs> Um, yes, actually, you're correct. And the, the there's actually this the association with the banshee. There's a number of striking resemblances between keening and the banshee itself. The word that's used for describing a cry uh, is called gull. Uh, the gull or cry was the most important constituent of the keen. And it bears a striking resemblance to descriptions of the singular cry of the Banshee. For example, when looking at details of the Banshee's cry, we see reports uh, such as mournful cry or wailing, piercing cry and pitiful. The description of this unnatural scream mirrors those given of keening women, how they shake the roof with their female crying and lamentation and they're all unnatural screams. So you're very, very correct in making okay, cool. that. I just thought a very interesting connection. And that's interesting the way they describe it. <laughs> yeah. Because I, it's all very focused on um, the, the female expression of death, which again, uh, kind of pairs back to what we were talking about with the masking, the funeral drama, the mm -hmm. stages, the transformation of the body. So in my research, I also found things that back up both of what you're saying. Uh, in although it's not related to death per se, the Sami use of kulning, which is like a song that you sing to herding okay. cattle, uh, is similar uh, in form and nature to the high pitched uh, sounds. And only women do kulning. So. Yeah. Um, there's something about a woman's voice that holds power and sway. And I kind of feel like this exactly goes into what uh, the reason I was so fixated on this particular aspect of 
of consuming grandma and being grandma and turning grandma from body into abstract. And I'm, I'm not saying this because I want to, you know, destroy grandma here. I love my grandmothers. Um, but there, there is something that is happening here where the woman is trans, like the women who are part of the funeral and also the body that is departing through the funeral are interconnected in this almost ethereal concept of transmutation. You are moving from physical form into spiritual form, and that requires space, sound, time, decoration, theater, a, a procession, a practice, because all of these things, it, it, it's like checking off boxes. <laughs> because uh -huh. in order for you to be presented to the goddess that is holding all the dead, you have to look a certain way and be presented a certain way. Because if not, is she going to accept you at all? And this question really did plague them because they knew that the afterlife was not a given. You were not given access. It wasn't like everybody got a free ride. You, you had to prove that you were worthy to die, worthy to go, and that the people around you cared enough about you to prepare you. And in some of my research, what I found was that some of this um, was also used to appease certain instances and also used to heal. So a body might be smashed or destroyed to pay for a crime. Let's say that a family at this time period did something completely egregious to the community. And the community would say, well, your payments are not enough. We want a pound of flesh. And this literally means and was used against black people in slavery and was used legitimately against criminals in both Ireland and Europe, a pound of flesh is a real legitimate thing. Mm -hmm. They would take a pound of your physical body. So back then the same practices were, uh, were done. If a person was deemed to be so egregious to the community, they would be asked to pay in kind or pay with a life. That life would be, would be processed through the community and treated as a god. And there's a reason why you take the punishment and make it seem like it's not. And because this person is now taking all of, for lack of a better word, sin of the community with them. They are going to carry your burdens, your problems, your crimes. And so therefore one person becomes the scapegoat who, um, literally will will give their body to the deities to ask for peace and so there's a concept of that being done as well and i think for me why this became so fascinating is because i really legitimately could not resolve myself to worshiping my ancestors and when i started researching things i realized that part of what they saw as worship was also depersonalizing the person. And that allowed me some freedom in my own religion and my own practice to say, okay, I don't have to, I can actually start abstracting my ancestors and see them also as the gods. Because there's a very interesting concept that happens in Norse mythology where the person who has now died and she has transitioned and become the abstract grandma. And everybody in the village knows that the body of this woman lays in the center of the town. And she is now the grandmother of us all. 
and we have consumed her flesh and taken her power. And through her, we have cast her body asunder to the community. We've taken her bones and made tools. We've taken her teeth and cast runes on them. She is now fully powered by this community. And something transitions within her. She becomes an effigy, a thing that we worship, a thing that trans transmuted, and she herself becomes a hair on hell's head. So we can transition our ancestor into being the, the, a form of hell, a form of our gods, because we are intrinsically connected to them. And I think that the Celtics as well had similar ideologies where a person could transition, and I am not saying that our ancestors are divine. That is not what I am saying. I'm saying you become a piece of that div divinity. You become like a stitch on hell's dress. You become a piece of her DNA because all of us are intrinsically connected through that DNA, through our life, through our, our garments, through everything. Every aspect of our life is pitched into the natural world. So, Shiel, did you find as well similar uh, concepts amongst the Druids where you had this infinite connection between, like, that everything is all connected, that it's all animist, and so that we can then transition from, okay, I don't just have to worship Ancestor Bill. I can see Ancestor Bill became the feather that's flying on the, on the Raven of Odin, and that doesn't mean I'm elevating them. It just yeah. means that I can see them as something other than they are. Well, we certainly do have the same and similar concepts. Um, you take a druid and you take the grove and you have trees which are very animist. Um, even just some of our gods and goddesses are very animist. Uh, look at Kerhanonos. He's a deity that presents as a deer. And it, whether in human, quote-unquote, human form, because nobody can see me doing my air quotes because... <laughs> Um, a human form, he still has the antlers and the green moss hanging from the antlers and his shoulders are wider and more robust. So there's the animism part. Um, and we do return to the mound to, um, I guess for lack of a better word, visit the ancestors that have transitioned. Um, we leave mm -hmm. them the next lives. Um, accoutrements including even animals like the egyptians did they mummified cats and dogs and other animals to put with for the next life which was the same idea and concept as the celts the celts had that same concept well i'm gonna animal sacrifice and i'm gonna have my hawk with me to go hunting in Kirnanog with my jewelry all adorned across my my body, I've become part of the, the uh, Tuatha de Danon goddesses and gods. Uh, I am now part of Dagda. So we do have that similar concept. We've also got the bog people. Now, very interesting that both Norse and Celtic have bog people. Um, and I believe it connects to your horde concept as well. Um, for us, it's called the Golden Bough. Now, when a king was made king, it was the goddess, the sovereign goddess, Morgan, who gave them their sovereign kingly um, position, in a way. Um, but if the harvest was 
horrible and there was drought and there were people dying and people dying of hunger and disease what would they do they would take that king and they would ritualistically murder that king and and disassociate that king from humanness into this thing this item where they would sacrifice to the gods for a better harvest for more rain for less famine for no disease and it was very ritualistic so that they could dehumanize that king and make him, that king an item and then they would put them in the bog as a sacrifice to the gods and the goddesses so it's very much we do have similar very similar concepts in tradition and Sarah, um, I because you do have ancestor worship where I don't, <laughs> um, I'm sure that you, in in a way, are basically saying the same thing I, I am, that you don't have to necessarily see them, but maybe from another heathen's perspective, how do you how do you walk that fine line where you're not deifying them? Because that's the one thing we don't want to do. We're not making our ancestors Taylor Odin, you know? Yeah, so it, for me, it's, it's never been like, you know, I, oh, grandpa died and now he's gained all of this wisdom and all of this power and he's, you know, this big magical creature in the sky. It's never really, it, to me, it's always been grandpa died, but he's still grandpa and he still is how grandpa was. So I have um, kind of a difficult time. And I think a lot of people do because, you know, with modern, the, the modern concept of death, the way that it's presented, we have a difficult time kind of seeing them after as far as like in the afterlife. So it was a struggle for me to kind of walk the line between grandpa is still grandpa, but grandpa is also a part of hell. He is, you know, mixed in with her DNA because to me that almost puts him in a, in a position where he's no longer grandpa. So that's kind of the, the main struggle that I have with, um, you know, ancestor veneration in general is, you know, at what point do you separate the two? And, for me that's 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 difficult is to separate like you know but no that's grandpa <laughs> so that's i think that's that's my big struggle yeah i tried but in the book to be concept of sacral kingship was brought up because i i find that so fascinating that it's something else that's kind of threaded throughout several different cultures is this idea of you know that sacrificial person in the community that sort of takes on all of the um you know sins for lack of a better word and then takes it away from the community so i i'm glad that was brought <laughs> yeah it's a really fascinating concept because yeah it it spans a few different communities that's really where we get the english word scapegoat from um and <laughs> uh, because one person was chosen to to yeah. basically take the crimes um but yeah, I, I think you're you're right on that, Sarah, that it does cause a, kind of a conflict of like, at what point does the person switch from being our ancestor to a much more ethereal concept? Um, in, in my research, mostly the answer to that was basically whenever you decided. 
And when the person finally transitioned, um, which may not have been known to the, to the, the survivors, right? Uh, so the family may not have known when the person exactly transitioned, but at some point uh, in their death journey, they do reach this pivotal moment where it's like, okay, they're no longer, uh, you know, we're going to remember grandma or grandpa for their fine, you know, she was a great spinner and weaver. He was a great blacksmith, but then they kind of see them as, okay, well now they're the sparks in the forge and she's the thread on my needle. And that, that is a very loose timeline of when exactly that transitioned, but it, it seems to be mostly like it would be the second generation. So the, the mother and father of the, the dead ancestor, their children would see the, the third in line being more a transitional object because so, they don't have, we forget, the grandchildren had no knowledge of grandma or grandpa. They had no idea who those people were. By the time they were born, those people would already have been long dead, gone. So they had no real anything other than the stories from their parents. But, I mean, interest, but interestingly, sorry, before, um, in this presentation by the Museum of Lachlan's, they did mention this and they actually specifically said that many of the stories that were told to children are actually not stories, but practical applications on how to produce an object. So children would be given stories on weaving, but it would be this intrinsical tale of how the thread was, and in there would be the method of how you would produce a thing. So Uh the children would never forget, like, the stories would be passed down like that generation to generation. This is how we have fairy tales now. Yeah. But each generation would tell the same exact story to pass on. Cause they only had three years or four years to pass on, like how to become a blacksmith, how to, how to, how to become a weaver, how to become a textile manufacturer. They had four years. And so that's not enough time. If you had your first child at nine and you were going to live, live and die to 13, you had very few time, very few years. So they mentioned that. And I thought that was incredibly fascinating because it pairs back to the the concept in, in heathenry and in, in Druid um, practice, the idea of storytelling and the idea of our lore and the the myths and, and eddas and things like that having such great importance. Because again, it's these, you're telling the people of the future how you did a thing so that they can also recreate it. And it's interesting that you mentioned generations because the kind of the general rule of thumb when, when dealing with ancestor honoring is three generations back. Um, Because prior to that, you don't know them. They didn't know you. And I think that might be that kind of that, that transitional period of, okay, it's been three generations, great, great, great grandpa is now something else. You know what I mean? Like it's, that's that's that transition period that we just sort of naturally chose, which exactly. I think is fascinating. It yeah. fascinates me in a way too, because there's always that three that keeps coming up. Yeah, it's like that magical number that just, <laughs> we, we decided as a culture was like, yep, three, that's it. <laughs> seems to be number three is their favorite number and there's a reason for it really um when you look at our our, our, uh, agriculture and archaeology 
um, three has always been a significant power number. Mm-hmm. So nobody knows exactly why, but the theory is, is that the belief that ancient peoples have was that there were like three tribes of humans, basically. Um, and we know that that's not necessarily true, um, but in their minds, they constructed that like there are three, there's always been three mothers. There's always been three, three, three. Yeah. And this number uh, is so important that they like carved it and formed it and built three times three of everything is why there's like nine stages to death. Like there's this number keeps multiplying itself and maybe we're just fixated on it as like as humans. There's something about that number that um, I don't know, has significant value. Uh Um, And who knows what that is, but yeah. Um, But it's interesting that this thread like remains the same throughout all three of us, um, which is absolutely fascinating. Um, And for me, this is why I I don't do the ancestor uh, veneration or practicing because for me, my third generation back is not a person who I would want to venerate. And my mom did not want to be venerated. So I'm out of respect for the desires of my ancestors I don't honor them in that way. Uh, instead, I try to live with the legacies of the good things that they left me, like the recipes and the you know family traditions. But I choose, pick and choose, to dispose of the things that they that I don't want to be. Um, and I, I have a much closer relationship to the gods than I do to my ancestors, but I think that that's okay and that's acceptable. What I have a problem with is gatekeeping and telling people that they absolutely have to worship their ancestors because... Historically, this is just not a thing. Like, they really were not obsessed with where the ancestors were. And if we find, quote-unquote, offerings in the ground, this is merely a transitory uh, obligation, not a practice. Like, it was mentioned by the archaeologists in this presentation, too. This is just a thing they did. Do not get caught up on the minutia of the details. It's just coincidence. Mm-hmm. Like, there was bread there, okay, because they had some. But don't get all caught up in your head that, like, oh, there's this big intrinsical practice where they went and give milk and honey and this and that. No, they didn't. It was just that when they were burying that person, they had a loaf of bread and they were like, ah, chuck it in there. Like, like literally. Um, they were a practical people. And they would just use whatever objects they had around. That's why you find unusual things in graves. Mm-hmm. This is why you find random shit in people's graves because they would just put whatever objects they had. And yeah. so don't get caught up on these details. Um, they, didn't really, they didn't really have ancestor cults or ancestor worship. Please like, just yeah. try to remember that. You can even bring that to the modern day funeral. Um, for example, and I'll take personal example. I hope my sister-in-law doesn't murder me for actually discussing this. Um, when their, her mother died, which is my husband's mother as well, right? Um, the, the idea of chucking shit in there with them actually came up. Um, for example, pictures of the family were put with her. And this is a modern day practice that we see today at, at, in regular everyday wakes and funerals and, and viewings is we, we still sing to them, we still sing for them, we still 
as you put it, I love the way you put it, Chuck in there with them. <laughs> we give them roses. We give them flowers. We place flowers on their graves on a yearly basis for some of us. I believe it took my sister-in-law a good three or four years before she wasn't there every year because her and her mom were very close. Um, now, this brings us to the modern, modern day practices. Um, like I'm pretty sure our listeners are going, well, what does that have to do with us in the modern day practice? Like, what are you trying to say to us, right? Well, how does it relate to, to the death care and whatnot? Well, through time and modernized techniques and new age traditions, we've lost our connection to that part of the life cycle. And we've lost that, that part of being with death and not being a taboo. It's deferred to professionals because it's an unsavory activity and it's emotionally uncomfortable and a taboo to even speak about. Um, the loss of that connection made death and process of dying something we no longer talk about directly with each other anymore. Um, death care was a familial community function back then, and it created a situation where the family of the deceased would be surrounded by the community in a time of mourning and, and be supported. And we don't normally have a lot of that anymore. Um, it provided a deep and profound release, both emotionally, psychologically, even spiritually. And there's that disassociation from our dead, too, on a spiritual level that we were talking about, where we disassociate the person from the human form of themselves. Um, it was a prof it provided a deep and profound release. Uh, it was a very important function, and to this day, it should still be a very important function. Now, after decades of moving away from death care, we're actually seeing, instead of commercializing the idea, we're seeing people moving back towards more personal, traditional death care, especially with the death doula. And Sarah did bring up death doulas in her section of Riding the Bones as well. Um, we see a more, and we have life community support workers, end of life community support workers, which is what I was. And I worked in that position for nearly three years. Um, and who are helping to cleanse the body, care and dress the deceased and, and provide the family with emotional supports and resources. We're even moving toward green funerals, wakes and services as well. And we're seeing more personalized emotional connection and community driven stance to death rather than the impersonal disconnected distance stance. Death has become less taboo today like it was for our ancestors in the past and helping us complete the life cycle more robustly and in a healthy, connected manner. That's how this whole book applies and, you know, is part of today's world. And I think that's why, um, you know, ancestor honoring is so, it is such an important part of my, my personal heathenry is um, I'm one of those people who's very disconnected from death. I, um, you know, I go to a funeral and it's okay. That person's gone. There's like, there's no connection at that point. So, and I know there's, you know, a, a lot of people feel that way. Um, so this, to me, it was a way to regain that connection of, you know, yes, modern funerals, they're all, you know, it, everything is done for the comfort of the people that are there. 
there so that you don't have to look death in the face. But that makes you disconnected from the reality of death. And that can cause kind of a disassociation of, okay, well, now I don't have object permanence, that person's gone, whatever. So for me, it was a way to reconnect to my dead. So I, it, it's just kind of an interesting parallel between modern and ancient. Yeah, um, for me, I wish I could say I haven't seen a lot of dead bodies. Unfortunately, um, in my life, I've had the misfortune of seeing three, and three was enough. <laughs> um, but uh, something profound happened to me when I viewed a dead body and what it really looks like. Um, it's very jarring to see yeah. a person that you love laid out before they've been prepared. Um, there's something intrinsically weird about seeing a life form without spark or animus. Um, it's actually quite troubling in your head because you know that this is a state that we all have to be in, but seeing it as something else. Um, and I, I mean, I was lucky not to see it like a horrific form of a body. I'm right. sure there's many people that have seen like bodies that are not quite intact or, uh, or have extreme trauma. Um, but, uh, for me, um, I used to have a large chunk of myself that wanted so desperately to find connection and family and, and some kind of ancestor veneration. And when my mom died, that ended there. Um, seeing her body, there was just something profoundly um, destructive in, that happened in my mind that severed any connection I had with family. And I think for me, it was because it's the last person um, that was still connected to me in terms of like a patriarch matriarch relationship. So for me, uh, because my mother's relationship with myself was very problematic and my sister's very problematic, um, and that I come from a line of, of abusers, um, it was really a way for me to look at her. And I think we even wrote this into the funeral. We said, Mom, you can take the baggage and the horror and the trauma and bury it. You can take it. You can take it with you because we didn't want to carry it anymore. Uh -huh. And so that that profoundness allowed me to like sever myself in a way from that trauma. And I think maybe this is something that only that I'm only relating to myself because I know I have PTSD. But in a way, this allowed me to have peace and and allow that trauma not ex to exist anymore. And I was able to put the burden of that trauma somewhere and get rid of it. And in a way, I kind of felt very close to uh, ancient practicing heathens because of the way they would depersonalize a, a, a human being I could understand that because I was looking at a body that I didn't I really was able to look at my mother's body and and think to myself I love you but I also could smash your face in with a hammer and I know that sounds cruel but in a way she took all my pain she took it all from me she was able I used her as a catalyst to destroy that aspect of myself. So in her, that closed the door for me. And what took its place was a much more connected relationship with hell than I expected. 
and a much more different uh, path for me to walk. But that doesn't mean that my path is like one that everybody should just like look for. It's extremely traumatic <laughs> to, to destroy a, a woman who gave birth to you in, mentally or physically or spiritually. I'm not, not literally. But it, it's, it's hard to do that. It's hard to like sever yourself from that relationship. But sometimes in, in trauma work, it is essential to destroy that aspect of yourself so that you can move on. And if, if an effigy takes that from you, then you're allowing that person to serve an extremely important role. And that's how I kind of, you know, got to this point in my life. Um, but that, you know, I think Shiel brings up a good, good point in that it's because we don't really understand what death could be used for. And I'm just giving one way that they can take that trauma that you've experienced with you. You can give it to them an effigy. You can say, you're going to take my, you're going to take my shit to the afterlife. I don't want it. I'm going to bury it with you. And you allow yourself a whole new life because you're, you're giving up that aspect of yourself. And um, as passionate as I am about, you know, honoring, my ancestors I'm also very passionate about the fact that it's not for everybody exactly and I don't think that it should be viewed as something that is this very profound beautiful it no sometimes it it fucking hurts and you know you have experience like with my father I did a very similar thing with him my brother and I both did we went to his funeral and we said something very similar over him. We said, you know, we don't want this crap anymore. This is you. Goodbye. You take it with you. You were done. And I spoke in the, uh, briefly in the book about my, um, my reluctance to ever include him in my ancestor honoring. And I still refuse, but for people who have, problematic ancestors because you always see this question pop up of you know what if you have problematic ancestors we all do but that's one thing that you can use it for is if it was a situation where they were just a bad person to you or you know you have some trauma you can give that trauma to them and send them on their way and, and say okay I you're done like I'm not I'm not going to recognize you as an ancestor, but you're going to take this and go. And I think that's a very valuable thing that people can do. And it's a very healing process. Yeah. You can also offer yourself up as the, I don't know exactly how to word this, but if, if you do like what Sarah is suggesting and you give that whatever you want to this effigy, that's going to take it with you and you don't want to carry on an ancestor worship veneration or incorporated practice. And a, a lot of heathens ask this too, well then just use the generic form of ancestor. Not everybody wants to do that. Like it's okay to say, I'm not gonna have it at all. Like yeah. why have it if it's not, like I don't know of a generic ancestor. Like who am I supposed to talk to? Like the wall? Like I I, I find that very strange. Like if, if this religion is built on the idea of, of honing into our culture and what's important to us, what's DNA, then why would I w look for a generic person that doesn't, 
that doesn't make any sense. Like a generic ancestor is not going to have any interest in me because they don't yeah, know there's me. There's not going to be any, <laughs> any, any kind of personal interest in. Yeah, it's no value, right? Make, like there, it makes no luck, you know, work for you because that's the whole concept is they knew you, you knew them. So they have a very vested interest in your success and your happiness. Right. But, but you can also a generic ancestor that has no interest in you. So why? Like if you at that point just do something else. <laughs> right. I'm gonna jump off of those statements. There's three Dana did it three times. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna jump off of those two statements and say for me as a practitioner, I don't per se ancestor venerate or honor or worship. It's more ancestral culture that I honor and venerate rather than the people. It's the culture and the folklore and the mythos and it's ancestral and it's a generalized ancestral. And to jump off of the, the generic ancestry thing, um, it's not about your what you do per se, and I've said this before. And a lot of gatekeepers are like, "Oh, you got to do it this way. You got to do it that way. It's it's got to be to the T." No, it doesn't have to be to the T. It doesn't have to be that hundred dollar statue on your altar. Mm -hmm. It can be a three buck statue, plastic statue. It can be the rock out of your back garden, for all the gods and goddesses care. It's about the intent and not the item. It's about what your intent that you pour into that item, into that dehumanized um, ancestor, if you will, for lack of a better word, or person that has passed and put toward or on the table. It's what you bring to the table is what they're looking for. The amount of hate that I have gotten for having a can of Pepsi on my ancestor altar because it's not Instagram worthy and they would not have done that in old Norse. And it's like, well, my grandparents drank Pepsi like it was going out of style. That's so there's a can of Pepsi on my <laughs> But again, you guys are bringing up exactly what I'm talking about. And that, and that is that the, we are the ones who create this theater and there was no one way. And exactly. so to tell people that there is a way a specific altar decoration and a alignment of the squares, you know, like, yeah. I mean, it, it just sounds silly when you think about it, because we all make fun of the people that believe that, like, the red candle is also going to, like, if you light it, give you love, okay? Like, we all know the frou-frou magic, but if we're going to make fun of that, why in the world are we saying to, to little baby heathens who come into the practice or little baby druids, like, you can't put a sunstone on that altar in that right. position. It has to be at one o'clock. Like, why is it at 12.55? You can't do that. Like, there was not a specific way. And I think that we get caught up um, trying to, to gleam in between the lines and, like, reconstruct this thing. But it, it's, it's like by... What is your obsession so hardcore on the ancestors? Like, think about what mentally you're trying to do. You're trying to find your whiteness. That, uh, really, that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to prove that you are culturally a, a Viking or whatever. Like, so I think you have to be very careful what you're saying when you are so focused on, like, what does it matter what your DNA is? 
what does it matter where you came from? Like the, the DNA that they had was mixed. The DNA that they shared was mixed. The cultures they shared were mixed. Everything about them is mixed. So you can't sit here and be like, oh, it's so important to do this or that because my ancestors. Well, yeah, but your ancestors also came from Africa and have Sami traditions and have Russian traditions and Irish traditions and English traditions. Like every time a culture met the Norse peoples and we're using that term broadly and same with the Celtic peoples. Yes, there was war and violence and I'm not saying it was all kumbaya, but there was definitely a when strangers came in, they adapted to the strangers, not the other way around. And so these practices became more and more evolved. That's why you see like from sacrificial pits to suddenly being buried in very ornate fashions and then suddenly fences going around the cemetery and then suddenly this or that. And we're going to get into that in the next section as we talk about like burial customs, really. Um, but we can see this line of thought that you can't be so focused on like the DNA does not make the faith. So you can have this religious uh, aspect to yourself without having that. You don't need it. It's a choice that you make. You can I, choose to have it or choose not to. I think though that that's two very separate ideas because typically when you discuss ancestor honoring or veneration or worship, however you want to phrase it, the people that you have that are very focused on the DNA aspect, they tend to sway a certain way politically, but you can also be one of those. They're all white supremacists. <laughs> right. You can be one of those people that's just like, I have a connection to my family and I want to have a connection to this ancestor energy but you can have that without, you know, oh, I know all my ancestors are white. I, yeah, I know them well, mine were. I, I should I, have clarified that that's not <laughs> genealogy. I, like, I just mean that I find the obsession questionable. And perhaps you should look in the mirror as to why, why specifically are you fixated so closely on this right. one thing? Like, if it's because you it, really love the culture and you want to know the history, and I Go think ahead. some of it too is just conditioning. You know, people are told they have to constantly. Yeah. You have to honor and you have to do. You have to honor and have to. Because no, we all know that there's <laughs> you like, don't. There's like either cope, right? So, um, yeah. you know. But before we end the section, I will, oh sorry, go ahead, Sheila, and then I'll read this part, and then we'll go to section two. Yeah, I'll reiterate both of your. I was I, I have this this saying that I've heard from of all places on TikTok Norse talk. Um, you can become a Norse pagan. Anyone can be a Norse pagan. Not everyone can be a Viking. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one, actually. Like, cultural Norse pagan is anyone can enter into that religious or, or you know, traditional practice of belief systems. Mm -hmm. That's true for the word pagan in general, as anyone can be a pagan. The culture belongs to... The people like Irish culture belongs to Irish people, but they mm -hmm. share it with, you know, uh, German people. And to, to reiterate, your Norse and their Dane. umbrella terms. <laughs> yeah, because Celt is a big, big umbrella term for Irish, Welsh, Brighton. Um, Brighton's used to be Romans. 
uh, you know, Scottish and, you know, the Isle of Man. So that's a big umbrella term, the word Celt. Exactly. So I'm going to end it with just a little bit of a snippet of the section I wrote about uh, the one time we ate grandma before we go into the other sections that we're going to be talking about. And it was this section that I wrote called She Who Giveth and Taketh Away. And it says, imagine, if you will, that you are born by the women of the village who bear witness to your coming. They carved sacred bones in your honor, telling all the mysteries of your destinies. They swaddled you in your first piece of clothing. You arrive to the village and are given a name and a sacred and holy rite in which the waters from the nearby river are sprinkled on you and link you to the well of the gods. You are then raised up to believe that you are important and valued to all who live in this village. You live out your days and when your time comes, it is these same women who come to you and prepare you as if for a wedding feast. Your time to become one with the ancestors has arrived. With cloth woven and spun, they place upon you your final piece of clothing that you will ever wear. They lay your desk mask upon you and send you along to your bride. Your remains are now scattered out to the land to protect all future generations. Your skull is taken and placed at the doorway of your family's home, your bones perhaps fashioned into whorls and bowls to protect your protective energy for work. You are now fully transformed and one with the universe. Why sometimes these ceremonies were bloody or gruesome is perhaps strange. How could a culture that saw grandma in such a way destroy her literal body, dash it upon the stones? To understand why they did this, you must understand. To prepare one for the gods was to eliminate human factors from the equation. They were prepared in a way that was acceptable. The violence afflicted upon a sacrifice may link to the stimulating regenerative prosperity or other desired outcomes. And from this, they did, to some degree or another, at least, suspend the meaning of the word human. And that is an excerpt from the chapter on why that one time we ate grandma. And we're gonna end the section now and have a little bit of a break and then come back and talk about the second section of the book where we're gonna be a little bit more about burial customs, some stuff about the funeral parlor and more from Sarah on her sections about ancestor veneration and, uh, you know, our views on these sort of things. So in that case, I'm going to count to 20 and have a quick break. And that's the end of part one of the Nevermore podcast for Riding the Bones. In part two, we'll be continuing the conversation on this concept of death and going further into detail on the project. Hope to see you on the next podcast.